We'll open up your Bibles, if you would, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, taking up our reading uh, from verse 2. Uh, verse 1 was really properly part of the previous section where we considered uh, uh, Paul's admonition not to be unequally yoked, which we applied not uh, only to uh, marriage with unbelievers, but also any near close partnership, that which would uh, lead to us being coerced uh, one way or another into idolatry. Uh, that was uh, what the first verse was related to. Uh, now we begin in the second verse, going through the end of the chapter, uh, through verse uh, 16, I believe. Yes, 16. Let's read God's word. Paul writes, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together. And to live together, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with one, uh, filled with comfort in all our afflictions. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For if I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made of to, to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Amen. Well, here we have the apostle pouring out from his heart all his great affections for the Corinthian church. And as we begin our consideration of this chapter briefly this morning, I want us to begin by considering in verses 2 through 4 the the, the command uh, that Paul begins with. He says, make room in your hearts for us. 
We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before you that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our afflictions, I am overflowing with joy. And you see just how the apostle is pouring forth words, stacking them, heaping them up, his affection for this church. But he begins with this command, make room in your hearts for us. Uh, This command is uh, not a new command. It's something he's already actually said uh, earlier in verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 6. You will remember Paul said there, widen your hearts also. And so this this command, he's reiterating it uh, as he begins this chapter. And as we considered previously, the meaning of this is, uh, is simply to to have appropriate affections and to receive the apostolic ministry of Paul and his apostolic delegates, his, uh, uh, his associates like Timothy and Titus and, and Silvanus or Silas, depending on your translation. He, he, he wants the Corinthian church to, uh, to have a right feeling uh, for them, to receive them, to love them. Uh, that is what he is exhorting them to And he gives some argument to that end. Uh, Why might they not uh, have such affection for uh, the Apostle Paul or his associates? Uh, Well, it may be because Paul's being slandered in the congregation. We don't know uh, for sure. It's not explicitly said, but we know that there are false teachers uh, plaguing this congregation, trying to lead them away, uh, not just from Paul or from the apostles, but from the apostolic gospel And so Paul is responding almost certainly to these accusations when he says, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. It's a a threefold declamation uh, concerning these allegations. He's saying, uh, we are completely, comprehensively innocent uh, of any wrongdoing. Uh, You'll notice there is in this declamation a, a threefold repetition, no one, no one. No one. There is no one in the congregation of the Corinthians that can legitimately lodge any uh, accusation against Paul or his apostolic associates. Uh, The manner in which they conducted their ministry, their character, and their conduct amongst the Corinthian church uh, while they were there was blameless. Uh, It's worth, even though Paul's point is primarily to heap up these, uh, these, these words, no one, no one, no one, There is a a distinct um, sense to each of these these verbs here. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Uh, The general sense of all of them taken together is that there is no accusation uh, that is legitimate. They are totally blameless in uh, in any uh, charge that might be made against them. Uh, But the specifics of the sorts of charges is is significant. Wronged uh, refers to a general kind of injustice, any sort of uh, demonstrable injury, uh, something that was lost or uh, or injured in uh, the course of their ministry, uh, to say that they uh, have corrupted no one almost certainly refers to the idea of false teaching and the subsequent moral corruption that comes from false teaching. And then obviously the, the third one, we have taken advantage of no one, uh, speaks primarily to sort of 
material or financial advantage. Uh, the, the, the apostles and their associates have not defrauded uh, or embezzled or otherwise uh, taken advantage of the Corinthian church in a material way. Uh, that is what Paul is uh, speaking of here. And so Paul and his apostolic associates are innocent, and he's highlighting here uh, some of the common sins, I think practically, uh, that false teachers are uh, prone to fall into, but also uh, what some uh, preachers, even in our own day, are prone to fall into. Uh, Here we see uh, three categories of sin uh, that are prevalent any time a newspaper reports on a scandal on the church uh, and how often we hear of uh, pastors and teachers doing harm to the congregation, uh, how often we hear of them leading them into uh, immoral conduct uh, through uh, sexual scandals and things of this sort. Uh, Even in recent news, sadly, there's been uh, several high-profile cases of this even in our own denomination. Uh, We think of how many times we've read or heard of uh, financial uh, malpractice, uh, people using credit cards uh, that were taken out uh, without the approval of session, uh, people embezzling funds uh, from the church for personal use to buy fancy sports cars and these sorts of things. These are the sorts of sins that often uh, discredit a minister and subsequently alienate him from the congregation. Uh, And yet Paul can say concerning these things, he is innocent. In all reality, what we have here with these accusations is is the false teachers doing what we might call today as projecting, right? Almost certainly they're the ones guilty of all these things that they are accusing Paul of. Uh, They're the ones uh, leading the congregation into immorality, even into idolatry, into abandoning the gospel for uh, external ordinances that, as you'll hear today, have been abrogated. Uh, they don't apply um, strict, strict keeping of, uh, of external laws. So this was the sort of thing Paul was uh, dealing with. And the false teachers, they're the ones really guilty of this. They're the ones taking advantage of the Corinthian church financially, leading it into sin. Uh, and so they are projecting. But Paul, uh, he emphatically maintains his innocence. And he urges the Corinthians to uh, reciprocate the same love which he and his associates have shown Uh, For them, he says, make room in your hearts for us. Moving on to verse 3, he says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And so we might ask, where, where is Paul's heart in his writing of the first letter and the writing of the second letter? What, what is he thinking? Uh, What is he feeling? Uh, What's on his mind? Is he trying to condemn Uh, the Corinthians? Is he trying to discourage them? Is he trying to destroy them? No. Far from it, he says, for I said before, uh, he's saying this isn't the first time I've I've spoken to this issue, written on this issue. He's made uh, references to uh, this in the past, but he's reiterating it here. What is he reiterating? It is the, the bond of unity and love that exists between him and his apostolic associates and the Corinthian church. Uh, he wants to emphasize to the Corinthian church uh, that there is a fundamental unity in his heart uh, between him and, and them. Uh, his, his affection, he's calling them to widen their hearts, to, uh, to open their hearts. And he's saying, my, my heart is wide open. 
I, I have such great affections for you and my motivation, that which drives me to write that former letter and this letter now is nothing except love. And Paul's written some hard things. That's really why he's saying this. Paul has had to address some very difficult issues. Uh, but as he has addressed them, uh, he doesn't relish in, in making hard declamations and denouncing uh, sin. That's not something that makes him you know, giddy on the inside. But because he loves the Corinthian church, uh, he must speak to them candidly. And that's what we're going to see as we progress in this chapter. Uh, one of the uh, exemplary texts that uh, Paul uh, wrote about this unity uh, before was in chapter 4, 10 through 15. I think we can use this to illustrate uh, what he means here, expand it a little bit. There he wrote, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And this is the important part. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that the grace extends more and more to people, it may increase. So Paul, Paul's point when he says uh, that uh, we are, uh, that the Corinthians are in his heart for uh, death and life, he's making this point that everything that he suffered as an apostle, which was a lot, uh, everything that has, he has experienced as a consequence uh, to his preaching has been done as a, as a labor of love for Jesus, uh, but also in a very important sense, for the Corinthian church and those who would eventually believe after them. Paul has a heart uh, uh, full of love for the congregation, and so he writes from that heart. That's very important as we consider the remainder of this chapter, that we understand what's motivating the Apostle Paul is his love for the congregation. All the hardship that he and his associates have endured is for your sake. And this is illustrative of what Paul means here when he says, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He bears them affectionately in his heart with such a, a unity that he sees all that he does as being with and for them. I want to make a, a few points of application uh, thus far. Uh, first, notice the importance of the minister's godly character and conduct. As I mentioned before, sin alienates. Sin alienates, and it doesn't only alienate us from God, the vertical consequence of sin, but there is a horizontal consequence of sin, namely that it alienates us one from another. And Paul, if he is to exert any meaningful influence upon the congregation, how necessary it is that he maintains himself his character, his conduct, to, to, to have a fundamental godliness about him. Uh, what happens to his authority and influence if he had uh, 
sinned against the Corinthians, if he had taken advantage of them financially, if he had led them into sin, uh, he would have no authority or influence whatsoever. So also the minister who compromises in these sorts of ways uh, loses the authority, the influence he has for the good of a congregation. Uh, hence the, the great sadness that comes upon a, a congregation uh, when their minister fails in these ways. We should guard our piety as pastors, and so you should pray for your pastors uh, that they would walk in a way which is worthy of their calling. That's the first application. Ministers must take care not to alienate themselves from their congregation by sinning against them. Secondly, uh, notice what motivates a minister and makes him willing to suffer for a congregation is this great affection which he has for them in Christ. Every one of, I hope you realize every one of your pastors here has this great affection for you. Uh, this isn't just Paul's affection for the Corinthians. It's exemplary uh, of the affection which every pastor ought to have uh, and I think we do have here uh, in this congregation. Every one of your pastors, I think, can say you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. We labor for your sake with you in our hearts and this affection which every minister ought to have for his congregation is what makes him willing and able to endure anything, whether death or life. Uh, we don't fear much for uh, dying in America, uh, but I think of the, the examples of pastors perhaps in more persecuted countries, uh, how willingly they lay down their lives in service for the sheep. And where, where did Paul learn to do that? And where have pastors learned to do that? What makes a, a man with a good career forsake that career to become a pastor, uh, to labor uh, for the sheep, to be arrested and put in prison, uh, to have his family stripped away from him? We think of examples like Wang Yi in uh, China uh, with the early Reign Reformed Church. That's uh, what hap has happened to him in these last several years. He was a prominent legal advocate, a lawyer, I think. He had a good and prosperous uh, future ahead of him, and he became a Christian. And through the ministry, uh, he brought uh, great uh, uh, fruit. Uh, the Lord blessed his ministry. He became very influential. Uh, but in that influence, he became noticed by the Chinese government, and he was eventually arrested and to this day, uh, for several years now, remains in prison. What makes a man do that? Well, it is the, the love which Christ has shown for him as a minister, greatly forgiven, and called to the ministry. He then loves the congregation with a, a love uh, like that which Christ has loved him with. And so we see the great affection a minister ought to have for the congregation uh, who, where he serves, whom he serves. And then thirdly, as, as a consequence to these first two, I want you to notice what your response ought to be. Has the Lord given you, ask yourself, has the Lord given you godly ministers? Have they demonstrated their love towards you by faithful service for years, uh, for decades? Then make room in your hearts for them also. Have the sort of affection which Paul calls for here. Well, practically, what does that look like? I think one way you 
show, you demonstrate the affection you ought to have for your, your ministers is by willingly coming to the worship services, receiving uh, meekly and humbly the, the word preached, not just the parts you like, not just the parts you agree with, uh, but when ministers have to warn you of sin, when they have to rebuke you for your sins directly, uh, when they counsel you, uh, receive their ministry. That's what Paul wants here. He wants the congregation to be receptive, not of him because he wants to be liked, but because as an apostle, he is an officer of Christ's church and trusted as being an ambassador for Christ. And it is his job to warn this congregation of sin. Uh, And he does so very boldly, very directly. Make room in your hearts for us also. I think about that language there, make room of your hearts. Rose and I were cleaning our kitchen yesterday. Uh, We were uh, trying to reorganize and uh, you know we, we've been in this house for about a year, and we kind of just threw things in cabinets when we first got there, got unpacked as quickly as we could. But things weren't really in the right place, and we had acquired a bunch of stuff we didn't really need. Uh, making room in your hearts means uh, purging from your hearts things which are in the way. And so we need to get rid of things in our lives, namely sin. And we need to reorganize our priorities in such a way as will be pleasing to the Lord. Uh, Not doing some things we used to do, uh, doing other things uh, in a different order perhaps, with a different priority, uh, prioritizing the things which God uh, is pleased by. Uh, Worship, the reading of scripture, prayer, uh, walking in the good works which he has prepared for us, uh, living a Christian life. Uh, This is what it means to make our hearts open uh, to the ministry and to the minister Well, in verses 2 and 3, Paul admonishes the Corinthians to make room in their hearts. Now, in verses 4 through 16, he expresses uh, what is in his own heart concerning uh, the Corinthians. And I've I've belabored the first few verses because I think uh, they are the most important part of this passage. It is what uh, motivates everything else. Verse 4 Paul writes, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. And so, again, Paul is heaping on words, describing the affections and sentiments of his heart, and he begins by uh, speaking about this great boldness he's had towards the, the Corinthians. What does Paul mean he's had great boldness? Well, from his strong affections, that has moved him uh, to speak candidly, to, to be frank with the Corinthians. And so he's referring here, his great boldness is referring Uh, to primarily his first letter, and we could include his second letter, everything he's written to this point, but he's not holding back. He's not addressing sin generally or vaguely. Nobody can look at the the, the first letter to the Corinthians and say, ah, Paul's just kind of dealing with vague situations and principle. No, he's, uh, you know, concerning this, I say this. Concerning this, you know, I say this. This He's giving very concrete instruction, uh, addressing a manifold variety uh, of sins, head on, 
And that's what ministers have to do. And you should not take that as being uh, uh, mean-spirited or uh, uh, out, of, out of some anger. Uh, when a minister deals with sin directly in you, if he is a good minister with right motivations, he addresses it directly because he loves you. And so we ought to respond by receiving uh, such boldness, uh, repenting from our sin. Uh, that is the correct response. This is how a minister must act. The apostle acts with great boldness in calling the Corinthians to repent. And related to this, he expresses great pride in them and is filled with comfort and overflowing with joy. The, the source of these strong affections is the God who comforts. I think we should pause on a title like that. The God who comforts. Who comforts the downcast. If you've been downcast as Paul was downcast because of the various trials which he experienced, uh, we should take comfort knowing that our God is a God of comfort. He desires to make us comfortable, not materially necessarily, not physically. Paul wasn't. Uh, but he, he wants to console us in our grief and our sorrow and our affliction. Uh, he, he wants to offer some remedy to those difficulties. And he is the God who comforts. He does so, notice though, by uh, particular means. The means by which God produces uh, these affections, uh, especially this comfort, is the coming of Titus. And even the coming of Titus is really a comfort to Paul because of the news he brings back from the Corinthian church. I think of our mission trips. We, go, we went to Taiwan earlier this year, uh, and we went and we knew uh, that one of our missionary partners was involved in a work that was experiencing great difficulty. And we went there for what purpose? I mean, we, we grilled hamburgers and that sort of thing. That's not why we went. Uh, we, we went to comfort this missionary. We wanted to go and to, to be with them face to face, to to fellowship with them, to worship with them, uh, to bring news of the congregation to them, and then ultimately to bring news of them back to our congregation. That's why we do these missionary reports. And what we have here is, is something similar. Uh, Paul he, he was preaching in Corinth, and a church formed, and then he left, as was his habit, to go preach elsewhere. And the circumstances are now that he's in Macedonia, and he receives report that all these things are going wrong in the church in Corinth. And so what does he do? Well, he, he sends a letter, and with that letter he sends one of his associates. Uh, here uh, we're told it is uh, Titus. He sent Titus to the Corinthian church. And Titus eventually returns back to Paul. And what does he bring? Is it bad news or is it good news? The news he brings back is good news. He speaks of how the Corinthian church responded. It says, excuse me. What characterizes the, the response of the Corinthian church to this letter? It says, ah, here we go. Coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. 
So I rejoice still the more. What what causes the, the Apostle Paul to rejoice? It is the good news that the Corinthian church has responded in a godly way to the very hard things which he has spoken of and written of very, very boldly to them. Now, all, all that sounds very ambiguous until we maybe insert a, an example. I think it's very likely that the, the, the specific situation Paul is referring to here is that man uh, who was engaged in sexual immorality uh, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 and how he uh, gave the Corinthian church a very hard instruction to excommunicate him. And the question is, were they going to do that? Would they listen to the Apostle Paul? Would they exercise church discipline as he commanded them to? And the answer is yes, they do. And that's why we see later when Paul writes, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church to warn them about this sin and many other sins. It doesn't have to be this example, but I think it's a good one. I think it's likely what he has directly in mind. But he warns them, and in response to his warning, they repent. Uh, they, 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 They do what they should have done to begin with, which is to deal with this issue. And by this, Paul is greatly encouraged. Now, there's a lot of other things we could highlight in this kind of section of the text. Uh, I think we could highlight uh, this idea of godly grief, which leads to repentance. We could distinguish between worldly grief, which does not. uh, But the godly grief that is uh, sorry for sin, not just because of its consequences, but because it has uh, dishonored God and how that leads uh, to salvation, not as a cause, but as a, a means and a way. Uh, our, our repentance never merits our salvation, uh, but it is a way in which God brings us to salvation. He gives us new life, and by that new life we repent and we believe, and therefore we want to walk in godliness. We want to be responsive to the admonitions of Scripture. That's what's going on here. Again, Paul's motive, he says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Uh, Earlier he said that it was not, uh, that he he, he did not regret uh, the writing. The the regret uh, is a regret that's not regrettable is one that leads to repentance. A regret which we have no need of regretting for is the one that leads us to repentance because it produces something which is good. And so there's a lot here. But I think when we look at Paul's fundamental motivation, although I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor that's, that, that's the sinner, or for the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that the earnestness, your earnestness for us, it's kind of an interesting statement here, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Basically, what Paul is saying is he he wants them, through this experience, to realize for themselves that they actually are earnest for the apostles. Uh, He's talking about relationships here again. Through this ordeal, uh, through this 
sin that this man sinned, through the uh, Paul's uh, imperative to, to exercise church discipline upon him, through their response to that letter by actually enacting church discipline, what was the end result? It was that the, the ministry of the apostle Paul was vindicated uh, and the relationship which this congregation enjoys with, pastor, uh, with the pastor is strengthened. Uh, God used this to bring the Corinthian church into a, a stronger, uh, more faithful, more affectionate and earnest uh, ministry relationship between the pastor and the congregation. I wonder, do we see that in, in our own exercise of church discipline, uh, perhaps in this church or other churches you've been in, that when the government of the church, that Christ as the head of the church commanding uh, elders in the church as a session to exercise church discipline in situations of, of egregious moral wickedness, such as was the case with this, uh, this man in 1 Corinthians 5, Do we we see those situations as being things that divide the church? And so we just don't deal with them, try to cover it up, brush it under the rug? Or do we see church discipline as an opportunity that God is giving us to strengthen the relationship and trust and affection between congregation and pastor? I think that's how we're supposed to see it. That's how Paul would have us to see it. That because we see the church doing church discipline, because we see the session uh, dealing with us in this way, uh, because we understand the fundamental motivation of love, that by this we would trust our pastors and our elders all the more. We would have a greater affection for them because they actually do what Jesus requires them to do. This isn't something that divides a church or shouldn't divide a church, but it's something that should strengthen the church. So Paul is greatly comforted because all of this has gone exactly how he could have hoped it would have gone. They did respond to the letter. They did repent of their inaction. They dealt with the sin in their congregation. They disciplined this man. And as we see actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I think, the man actually responds to the church discipline by repenting. And Paul, you'll remember, encourages them to receive him. All of this is a vindication that church discipline actually works, and it's actually good for the church. We shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't avoid it. Uh, We should be greatly comforted, as Paul was comforted, uh, when we do these things. It goes on, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced. How am I doing on time? got seven minutes. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything was said to you was true, so also our boasting before uh, Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And so Paul's point in this last paragraph is to, to emphasize that it's not just his own comfort, uh, but he is also uh, grateful uh, for how this has worked in the life of, uh, of Titus. You think of Titus. He's a young apostolic associate, a, a newish pastor, right? Uh, he's, he's relatively new to the ministry, and Paul the apostle has sent him to the church in Corinth to tell them that they need to excommunicate 
this sinner in their congregation who's committed this sexual immorality or any of the other pastoral discipline issues that they're told to deal with, but I think that one highlights its best. How must Titus have been feeling as a young minister? How, how apprehensive, perhaps, how, how, how fearful of, uh, of what they might say or do in response to this. And yet what we see is that the, the young minister is also greatly uh, encouraged. We rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. Why, why is Titus so uh, joyful? Well, he's been refreshed by you all for whatever boast I made of you about you, I was not put to shame. So Paul's been bragging about the Corinthian church. And now Titus has seen uh, that this church actually is uh, everything that Paul has said it is, both in the bad but especially in the good. And so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection, here's the result, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How greatly encouraged Titus is that in his delivering of this hard news, the congregation has responded in obedience, and so he is strengthened in his own confidence and joy, uh, and his affections for you are even greater. He, he, he loves the congregation in Corinth, even as Paul loved the, court, the congregation in Corinth. Uh, he shares this affection. How you received him with fear and trembling. Speaking again, why, why are they fear? Why, why are they receiving him in fear and trembling? Because well, he's bringing this news of discipline, among other things. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. There's a, there's a great vote of confidence by the Apostle Paul. If you're ever wondering, was this an apostate church or a true church of Christ? Well, consider its mark. Uh, one of the important marks of the true church is that it exercises church discipline in a biblical manner. The church in Corinth did so. Had they not, it would have demonstrated that they had abandoned not only Paul, not only the apostles, but Christ himself. When we fail to do church discipline, uh, this makes us no true church at all. And yet that was not the case for the Corinthian church. They responded with repentance and obedience, and so Titus and Paul are greatly encouraged. Most of you probably never see uh, the inner workings of church discipline because it's not something that's usually done in a very public manner. Uh, I've sat through uh, numerous meetings, and I've been in congregations where men have been excommunicated uh, for a variety of reasons. And one of the, the results of church discipline when it is done right is that we should grow in our appreciation for the godly government which God has blessed us with. We should look for that in a church. This church practices biblical church discipline. You sign a little thing on the bottom of your application when you join. Let that be a, a, an encouragement uh, that we want to do these things in a biblical manner. Let it also be a warning if you should ever wander from the way of righteousness, if you should ever egregiously sin in such a way as to bring church discipline upon you, know that the session will act, uh, whatever case it might be. If it's sexual immorality, if it is, uh, is uh, idolatrous worship, whatever it may be, uh, this is a mark of the true church. I believe it a mark of our church as well, and that should encourage us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great confidence which the Apostle Paul has for the church in Corinth, especially because of their repentance and obedience and how he rejoices in their biblical response to his admonitions. Lord, I pray that you'd make us a responsive people, that 
when a brother comes to us and warns us of, of sin, that we would respond and repent. When a session warns us uh, as a session, that we would especially heed their warnings, Lord. Would we be a repenting people? Would we be an obedient people? Would you help us to do so by your Holy Spirit? Would you build up our church in peace, but also in purity? Would you bless us, Lord, and give us great joy uh, as members of a well-governed biblical church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.